The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we do lift our voices in thanks to you. And as we have sung already several times this morning, we are most thankful that you have acted to save us. You have done that. We did not save ourselves. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us by your command, by your will, by his loving submission and agreement. He came and embraced the cross to save people like us who were against Him. Thank You for that. And thank You for what You have made from that a church. Thank You for this church, this particular collection of people. And thank You for the assurance that Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will will come to pass here in this place, in this body, in our lives. I'm thankful for that, Lord, at times when it seems like nothing works. You remind us Your will will be done. You reign. You accomplish all of Your good purposes. Nothing is thwarted. You are God. And You are good. And we give You thanks. And then we ask You this morning, as a part of You carrying out Your will, to conform Your people to Your image and to make Your church an accurate reflection of You, a pure and spotless bride. We ask You that You would take this passage of Scripture this morning and work a change in us. You begin this morning this topic of division and unity. And I pray that You would do something this morning and also begin to do something that is larger than what will be just accomplished today. I pray that this morning You would turn us from self to You, and You would begin a longer, deeper process of turning us from ourselves to You. I pray that You would begin a work of healing division and of chasing far from us those thoughts and desires that create discord, that produce schism. Lord, I pray that You would do that this morning and that you would start to do that this morning, both. So use your word, and I pray by your, by your Spirit's power, would you open up this word to us and allow us to see it and to understand it and to see you and to understand you behind it in, in fresh ways. God help us, I pray. And thank You for the assurance that You hear and that You answer and that You will cleanse us and make us a beautiful bride for Your Son. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Over the last two weeks as we've moved through the opening section of the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen that it was a letter... It is a letter actually written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city in what is now Greece, and in a lot of ways, culturally and and in mindset, it, it resembles America today. And there was a church there in that city, and Paul founded it, and when he left, he stayed in touch with it by writing letters, one of which is this book we call 1 Corinthians. And as we've been looking at it, we've We've seen that Paul used the basic structure of a letter of that day, how a letter would traditionally open, and he used that basic structure and modified it, turned it in a couple of ways to make some points. 
Notably, we've been faced with the sovereign authority of God in and over His church. It is His church. He's the one who makes it by calling people into it. He's the one for whom it exists. He's the one who sustains it. It's His. He's an authority over it. And He's extremely fond of it. He looks upon His people, His church, with a deep affection. He loves His church. He pours out abundant grace upon grace upon grace unto His people. And though He is well aware of of the faults and problems in the church, He does not look at it judgmentally or critically, but graciously in kindness and love. He's called people like us into fellowship with His Son, who then holds us and carries us and sustains us all the way to the end and looks at us in that day guiltless, which is remarkable. That's how He views us, and that's how He wants us to view His people, the church, as well. We've seen that already in the first couple sections. And now we turn to the body of this letter, from God through Paul to us. Instruction and correction to the church He loves. To love and and look at graciously and to be extremely fond of a people and to point out their sin are not mutually contradictory stances. The, the very existence of this section attached to last week's section is itself a point for us. We, we people, we struggle to have categories for how you can be loving and gracious and really clear and pointed about sin. We don't think those two things fit together very often. But the very existence of this passage following last week's passage, and and frankly the whole rest of the letter, proves something to us. That judgmentalism is an attitude that need not accompany pointing out sin. He's against judgmentalism and critical spirit as we talked about last week. And he points out sin very clearly this week and in the weeks that follow. So we need to have a a category in our minds for love and grace that's really clear and really pointed about sin. Because sin is our enemy. And to be loving and gracious towards us is to point out our sin and, and to hopefully help root it out of us. That's what God wants to do. And he turns, through, through Paul's pen, turns immediately in our passage today to a significant sin and, and raises an issue that's really going to be a dominant issue throughout the whole book. And he's going to raise several themes that are going to be dominant themes throughout the first several chapters of the book. So really this morning we're beginning something that we won't end for quite a while. But we will begin it this morning. And here's the main point that we're going to address through verses 10 to 17 this morning. God intends that His church be united around the Gospel. God intends that His church be united around the Gospel and not divided in strife over personal preference. Not divided in strife over personal preference. I'm going to unpack that in two stages, but first let me read the passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verses 10 to 17. So I'm going to approach this main statement through two different stages. The first stage begins with what God intends, what He's after among us. I put it like this God's church must display unity not factionalism and division. must display unity, not factionalism, the breaking into factions, groups. Not division into segments that are based upon preference or peripheral issues. And I say that very carefully because I'll come back to this probably a few times today. There are certain types of divisions that are important and necessary. And actually later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about that. It is important and necessary to divide over issues of core truth. And sometimes that, that happens, and we need to be, be aware of that, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. That kind of vision is not what's in view here. God wants us to display unity, not factionalism or division based on preferences and peripheral issues, things that are around the edges, on the surface, on the outside. Start in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. And understand that if you're a woman or a girl, you're in this too. This is a statement kind of like saying siblings. You could say brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, because he's an apostle. His appeal is a command. What does he command? I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to that in a little bit. He commands all the rest of verse 10. Which is a bunch of different phrases in it. It's a, a multi-part statement that is the heart of this passage and really is a significant verse for the whole book. Which isn't surprising being that this is the first thing he says. Four different phrases here. And they are not completely unique to Paul. He's picking them up from literature of the day. He's kind of grabbing things and bringing them into his argument. These phrases or variations of them occurred in political and social discussions of the day about unity, oneness, structure in in society in that time. Particularly take the first one. That all of you agree. Literally, it's that you say the same thing. Which is a way of identifying allies. In the political sphere, they say the same thing. Or or we might say they sing the same tune. They're, They're reading from the same book, the same script. It goes beyond something that's just literal. It's not that they are literally saying exactly the same thing. It's that they're on the same page. Which probably means that they agree on a lot of things. But it's not just about agreement. It's about alliance. It's about a union. We are allied. I appeal to you that you be allied, not divided. The next phrase. That there be no divisions, which is the word from which we get schism. Again, a, a political party or a political breaking off, a dividing into clusters or groups or voting blocks, if you will. He wants alliance, not division. And flipping it back again, tied together with the same mind, with the same judgment. Not meaning same mind as in brain, obviously. Mindset. If you look at things from the same mindset, from the same perspective, you kind of see them in, in a similar way. You're going to come to a similar judgment, a similar evaluation of things. Word that's used elsewhere in the Bible and in other literature to, to talk about similar purpose or similar consent. We are of the same mindset and so we are about the same stuff. We agree on a wide range of things because we see it similarly. Paul's commanding, I want you, church, to be allied, 
to walk down the same path, to see things in the same general way, and to come to the same view, the same purpose, the same goals, and not to be split apart into segments and schisms. We're on the same team, which, which doesn't mean that we're identical. This is political language, so, so think of political alliances. And one that leaped to my mind was, th- think of the connection between Great Britain and the United States over the last 150 years or so. A profound alliance. Now, Great Britain and the United States, are we identical? No. We don't even speak the same language. But we've been saying the same thing for quite a while now. In every little detail? No. No. But we are on the same page. We see the world similarly. We use our resources towards common ends. That kind of an alliance is is how Paul says, how God says through Paul, the church is supposed to be. We are not identical. There will be disagreements, but there must be a profound commonality. Not a division. That's the goal. That's what it's supposed to be. That's not what was happening. Verse 11. It has been reported to me, some messengers came to him, Maybe deliberately to talk to him, but perhaps they were in town on business. It's not clear. It's been reported to me that there is quarreling among you. And what I mean is, every one of you, this is not just a couple of people, that each one of you says, here's here's what the quarreling's like, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, who was an eloquent, gifted, knowledgeable, godly minister, a friend of Paul's who came to town after Paul left and pastored the church there. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, Peter, the apostle, or the holier-than-thou ones. I follow Christ. Notice that's not a good thing. It's in this list of schism. There's the factions. It's actually been reported. You're supposed to be on the same page, allies of one another, but it's actually been reported to me that all of you are all split apart following this guy and that one and this one over here. I vote for Paul. He's my candidate. He's the founder after all. I'm with Apollos. Have you ever heard him preach? Oh man, he's so eloquent. Well, Peter obviously is the one we should follow. He's the head of the twelve, the rock. I think you guys are all childless. Just me and Jesus, that's all I need. This is what's going on. And it is not just simply... I kind of resonate a little bit more with how Peter puts things. His language makes a little more sense to me. It's not that. It's quarreling. There is fighting going on over this. That's what I hear is going on. Literally, it is strifes. In the plural. Multiple strifes in the church. Discords, the body of Christ divided, broken up, torn apart into camps that are at each other. This is issue number one. Right out of the gate, the place where Paul goes, you are blameless in the sight of God, guiltless before Him, and let's talk about how you are guilty in this significant critical area. It's not judgmentalism. He's doing it in grace. In fondness for these people. But it's a significant problem that he must address. It's a big problem in Corinth. Thankfully, we know nothing of this. Really? God's church must display unity, not factionalism and division. And we, Salt Lake Evangelical Free Church, must display unity, not factionalism and division. How are we at this? And specifically for a minute, to hold to the exact issue that's raised here, prone to factionalism following particular people. Let's think about that for a second. 
How are we prone to factionalism, glorying in men and women who have feet of clay? Where? How? There are clearly parties in this church. Clearly. Some of different nature than others. You can notice it when someone gets offended and five people are upset. The other four who would know nothing of it if they hadn't heard about it from the first one. seen that several times. You can see it sometimes in, in, in kind and in gracious ways, but there are cliques, we call them sometimes. Certain people in certain theological camps talk to certain people in certain theological camps and don't talk to these other people. When they do, there's sniping going on back and forth. What about teachers and leaders? How many times recently have you said, John Piper says, John MacArthur says, Kay Arthur says, Beth Moore says. Now, carefully, here's my, here's my disclaimer from before again. It, it might not be wrong to say that because we deal with something a little different than what they were dealing with here. Paul and Apollos and Cephas, all those guys are on exactly the same page theologically. There is no theological separation. That's not the case in our world today. And it might be necessary and appropriate for us to say, as I study the Scriptures and I understand what they're teaching, this person, this man, this woman, more accurately reflects that than this person does. So I have to side with this for the sake of truth. That may happen for us. It didn't happen for them. But that disclaimer aside, are you forming camps? Because each one of those people and everybody else, you know, fill in the blank with whoever you like, each one of those folks has a cult of personality that's developed behind them, much to their chagrin. Much to Paul's chagrin. Paul actually praises God that he didn't baptize more people so as not to have accidentally fueled this problem. Each one of those folks I named and others would, 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 would grimace. I mean, they, they would, ugh, if they knew and they, and they know that people hold them up as if they are gods and worship and follow and take truth directly from them. I just ask you, are you doing that? Are you there? Are you of John Piper in a bad sense? Or fill in your blank. Are you of our church? Contra that one over there, or that one over there. Are you of someone who ministers in this church or used to minister in this church? Contra that one over there or that one over there. You drive around town and you can see different places. This guy's name. We're about this guy. Are we about some particular guy? Are you? Careful. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that a lot. And I'll be completely honest. I sometimes hear things meant to be favorable. I sometimes hear things about this church or about some things going on in this church or about me meant to be favorable that make me fear. Because God opposes the proud. And it sometimes sounds like we are proud. Careful. He will not share His glory with another. Careful that He not write Ichabod across us. The glory is departed. Careful. 
must not follow people. God will not share His glory with another. But to do justice to this problem that they're facing here, it would be helpful, I think, for us to think under it or into it just a little bit to see what lies beneath. Because the root that lies beneath this problem produces other fruit in other different places. So think about this for just a second. And think about it. Pursue it kind of in your mind to try to understand yourself a little bit. Where does strife come from? Because that's, that's the issue here, is that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. They're not just saying, you know, I kind of prefer so-and-so. I really resonate with this guy. They're arguing about it. There's strife. Where, where does that come from? What's going on inside of you when you grab on to something or someone so strongly that you are willing to fight with someone else who doesn't? What's going on there? Well, there's a clue in verse 13. The person or the viewpoint point or the item that you're holding on to and fighting over has become more important to you than Christ has. Is Christ divided, Paul asks? Well, no, but yes. No, He's not. But I'm willing to divide Him over the sake of my choice. Was I the one crucified for you? You've got to be kidding me. Was I? Because you're celebrating me as if it was actually me who saved you. Now, they know the answer to that question. Of course not. Paul wasn't crucified. But Paul has risen to ascendancy above Christ. We worship Him. We celebrate Him. We act as if we were baptized into His name. He's the one that we follow. We bear. We are Pauline, not Christian. Paul is aghast that people would actually value him more than Christ. This is not about Paul asking for this kind of reverence. It's not about Paul deserving this kind of reverence. It's about the people wanting to give it. Which, take this another step, means that it's really about the people wanting I have made a choice. I have made a choice. And I think that my choice should be recognized by all as the proper choice. As the right one. As the one to be followed. That's about me. Not the choice. Paul's really clear. This isn't about me. The problem lies somewhere other than in me and somewhere other than in Cephas. We read it in chapters 3 and 4. He comes back to this. Clearly, he loves Apollos. He sees Apollos on the same page. It's not in Apollos' camp either. None of us are fueling this. You guys are. There's something in here. There's something in the heart that wants to, that loves to, that feels a need to have my decision, my values, my preferences, my way, my guy be the guy. That's about me. Which means that if we're going to solve that, something has to come and deal with my love of me. We'll come to that in a minute. It's going to point us towards the the second observation. But I I need to stop here and and point out, verse 10 is very broad in its scope. It's not only talking, verse 10 is not only talking about this following of human leaders. It's talking about allies, no division, period. And what causes division? What causes quarreling and strife among you? If we need it from somewhere other than reasoning through verse 13, we could jump to James 4 and say, James tells us straight up, what causes strife among you? You you, you want something and you don't get it, so you fight for it. That's about you wanting your way. 
Now, there could be necessary division over truth. We're not talking about that. We must not divide, show schism, break apart into parties over peripheral issues and personal preference. So I ask you, do you need to repent? Do you need to repent of following after people, other men, other women, or fueling division in some other way? Are you a part of it right now? Are you in a clique? A, a circle of gossip that you talk to and turn... I guess you don't probably call it that. A Bible study. <laughs> a prayer group of encouragers who help bear your burdens. I point that out to you in love for you. Because I think sometimes we don't see it that way. But that's what it is. Are you sowing seeds of division? Or are you fueling alliance with the whole body? Do you need to repent? God's church must display unity, not factionalism and division. Which when we think about where it comes from, means that, I could put this a different way, God's church must be about something other than me. God's church must be about Christ. More important than any of my preferences, than any of the peripheral issues that I see and regard as critical. God's church is about Christ. Which takes us to the second point. First point was what God intends, and the second point is about how He gets us there. And He hints at the solution right in verse 10 by what He grounds this command in. But here's the second observation. The Gospel of Christ crucified is to be our focus and the source of our unity. The Gospel of Christ crucified is our focus and the source of our unity. We are to live off the Gospel, have our minds filled with the Gospel. Verse 10 is His, his appeal, His command. And He appeals by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that they be allied together. Rather than lining up behind all these other human names, by or on the basis of this name I appeal to you, which if you're counting is the tenth time in these first ten verses that this name, the Lord Jesus Christ, is used. The only way we could possibly miss that is because we've spent three weeks addressing it. And perhaps because we're reading the Bible and we expect Jesus to be all over the Bible. But this is a really stilted way to begin a letter. Which is what this is. And if you look at it, you notice that it isn't even something short like Jesus or Christ. It's always at least Christ Jesus, most commonly the Lord Jesus Christ, some variation of that, such that as you get this letter and you hear it read aloud, which is how it first would have been delivered to the church, read aloud, they would have heard it and they would have heard the Lord Jesus Christ, 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 Christ Jesus the Lord, Christ the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, I follow Paulus. Something something doesn't fit there. You'd hear it like that. I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no factions. A common mindset. What's Paul's mind? What's on Paul's mind all the time? The Lord Jesus Christ. Called into fellowship with Him. Held, sustained by Him, in Him, graced and blessed. And He's the one who carries us all the way to the end and counts us guiltless before Him. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
Is this Christ divided? No. Was not this Christ the one crucified for you? Yes. Is it not in His name you were baptized? Yes. Who are we about? For whom do we exist? By whom are we sustained? How exactly does that then connect to the problem that we're looking at? This, this idea of division and breaking apart. Well, it's not quite so simple as to just say, by sheer repetition, I will brainwash you. It's not, not quite that simple. And it's not quite so simple as to just say, you should worship the Lord Jesus Christ and not worship Cephas, Paulus, Paul. Though that, of course, is true. But to just say it like that is essentially to say, don't sin. Don't fall into idolatry, worshiping these men, worship God. Which is, of course, true. Pretty obvious, but it immediately raises the question, how? Everybody already knew that. They shouldn't do this, but they're doing it anyway. How do you overcome this? Because there's something that needs to be overcome. Talking about it a minute ago, what is behind this fundamentally is a commitment to me. Meanness. How do I overcome the worship of me? How do I overcome a me-centered mindset, a heart that is bent on what I want when I want it? Where is there power to change the wayward heart that is prone to wander after all kinds of other stuff? Prone to be wowed by eloquence and personality, impressed with human prowess. Where's there power for that? Well, he's hinting and mentioning Christ all the time. Talks about it in 13 when he mentions the crucifixion, but he comes to it clearly in verse 17. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you're reading the NAS, it just says emptied. Think of it as being gutted. Lest the cross be gutted. There is something in the cross that's not available anywhere else. There's power there. Our problem is not that we act wrongly, that we sin. The problem is that we have hearts bent a certain way that then lead them to sin. There's got to be something that deals with the heart. That's what's available on the cross. Power to change the heart, which then will lead to different things flowing out of me. There is a power unleashed by God upon those whom He calls into fellowship with His Son that is both simultaneously a radical shattering power and also a slower changing power. They both come at the same moment and one is sudden and one's ongoing. Think of it perhaps like a dam water. A dam holding back a massive amount of water. And there's a power that comes that shatters the dam so it suddenly unleashes a rush of water. But if there is a large, let's say, endless supply of water behind the dam, it's suddenly released and then over the next Minutes and hours and days and weeks and months, the dry valley behind it will be filled in. If you're you're right up next to the dam, all of a sudden you get soaked, buried. But if you're several miles down there, it might take a few minutes. If you're a certain elevation, it'll take you a little while, but it will fill in everything eventually. That kind of dual power is what God has unleashed at the cross. He has done something dramatic, sudden. Something dramatic and sudden that has grabbed a hold of our hearts and and shattered, broken a hold that our hearts were under. A 
a hold that, that held us to sin. That mastered us. There are different metaphors used in the Bible. Blindness, slavery. The general idea is that we, before the shattering power comes, are held captive. We cannot see. We cannot break out. We cannot move away from this love of self that dooms us before the wrath of a holy God. And so He shatters that. Opens blind eyes that we see Christ for who He is and we are drawn to Him and we love Him. That's happened to every Christian. If that hasn't happened in you, you're not a Christian. The dam has been broken. But then what goes on is that month after month after month after month, Corinthian Christians are still facing, we still face the same issue of who do I love? Self or Him? And we need then that ongoing, unfilling, sanctifying is a religious word that we use. Power. It will change our affections a little bit more today. Draw us back to Him. That power is also available in the cross. Also given to us in the cross. It is a power that turns our loves. Turns our affections. Shows us who He is. Not just intellectually, but actually shows us, gives us, I was reading a book recently, it used a word I thought was a good word, an accurate perception. Allows us to perceive what is real in Christ. That's a power that is in the cross to work on me on the inside and change me. But it can be missed. Notice how Paul says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. It could be missed. Everybody that he's writing to knows the facts of the gospel. Everybody, probably most people that I'm talking to here this morning, we know the facts of the gospel. We, we know this idea, but we miss the power of it. There's a little hint as to how that power can be missed. I did not come to speak with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, what he's doing here is he's opening several chapters worth of stuff. So we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that in the chapters to come. But for this morning, just narrowly, let me say, he's setting up two things here in contrast. The power of God in the cross, human tools. Human means, human methods. I could conceivably work some stuff with some human, some, some worldly technique. And, and perhaps it might produce something on the surface for a little while. But it would miss the power of God to actually produce change inside. You can miss this by trusting this. We need heart change on the inside if we are to be freed from love to self and turn to love to Christ. Do you trust God to do that in His Gospel, in the cross, in Christ crucified? Or, essentially, do you trust human means to make peace? Human means to end division. There are human means to end division. We'll vote. And if you lose, you leave the church. That ended division. Everybody here is unanimous. That happens. I, I, I mean, I'm joking a little bit. That happens all the time. We end up with unanimity because everybody who disagreed left. That's a human means. That's a human means of creating oneness of mind. Or we could strike a compromise in some way that gives you a little bit of what you want and gives me a little bit of what I want so I can still feel that I got some of what I wanted. It's a human means. Now, he talks about eloquent wisdom, as I said, that's related to some other things which we'll come to later. It's possible 
for Christians to conduct life, and I would submit that we do this far more than we realize, to conduct life in community, completely missing the power of God and the cross to change your heart. Not even thinking that it's necessary. But living by human means. Brothers and sisters, please don't do that. Don't. There's no power in it. There's no life change in it. We try to build a church. By that means, we will fail. We must live soaked in the Gospel. A Gospel which first breaks us. A Gospel which first, and this is one of the reasons we avoid the Gospel, is that it is a Gospel that first condemns us. And we Corinthians don't like that. It is a Gospel that first sets us in our place, beneath. First exposes all of our sin. And then on top of that, shows a glorious Christ who forgives it. And those two things are necessary. Follow what I'm saying here. I hope I'm not getting a little too complicated here, but we love self. That's the problem. Need to love Christ. The solution to loving self. How do you love Christ? Well, there's a, a change that happens inside of you so that you see Him to be lovely. And what is most lovely about Christ? That He would forgive a wretch like me. I'm not a wretch though. Yes, you are. The Gospel condemns you first. And then shows Him a beautiful forgiver so that He seems marvelous in your eyes and you seem less in your eyes. And what comes out the other end of that is a glorious union with you, between you and Him, an alliance between you and Him that is wonderful. You are in the fellowship of His Son, Jesus. And with all those other ones who are in fellowship with Him. The Gospel has to run every which way through our lives. Not just the I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, but first, wow, that's me? I'm forgiven of that. What a glorious Savior He is. I love Him for that. More than me. More than my preferences. More than the peripheral issues. So we need to preach the whole Gospel to ourselves. And if you want to help other people preach the whole Gospel to them, don't just tell them how good they are and how right they are. And how mean and misguided that other person is. Point out their sin to them. And then sing of a glorious Christ who has forgiven them of that even. And called them into fellowship with Himself and sustains them to the end guiltless. Wow! I would never divide that Christ. He is far too glorious for me to lift up my hand against Him or relegate Him to the back seat while I follow Cephas and Apollos and Paul. See how this works? I'm saying the same thing like three different ways. We must be a people who live in the Gospel and with the Gospel in us. All of the Gospel. The condemning also, as well as the forgiving. They come together. With Him at our center. With Him on the throne of our hearts. We will then find common cause with Him and common cause with our brothers and sisters. A similar mindset. Both you and I are fixed on Him. Similar mindset. And so we see things similarly in the world. We are allied with one another in a union that flourishes. Perfectly with no disagreement? No, we're going to see some things differently. But we won't be in strife over those disagreements. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel of Christ crucified is what God has designed to stand at the middle of our hearts and at the middle of our fellowship. 
It's the only path to an experienced, lived unity. Preach the gospel to yourself and to one another. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves where we are involved in schism making. And to see the places in our lives where we we forget the gospel and we forget Christ crucified and move on to our own desires. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would make us aware of those points because they, they very often slide by us. So would you please, by your Spirit, just poke us in those places at those times when we are sliding towards self and away from you. Help us with that, please. I, I, I am so thankful that you have a passionate fondness for this people. Your church in general and for this church. I'm so thankful for that. And so I ask you to display that fondness in this particular way. Make us aware of where we fuel division by not setting our minds on you. Call us back to you then personally in in quiet times of reflection and then through community as we talk to one another and seek help for our sin. Call us back. Fix us on You. And draw us then into alliance with one another, I pray. For Christ's glory in His one church, I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.